Welcome back to the Missing Maura Murray podcast. Tonight we have a really fascinating interview with a mysterious figure, well slightly I guess, mysterious figure because we're not going to give his real name here, um, but we're going to talk mostly about West Point. We also hear a little bit from Sam's dog in the beginning of this episode. Uh, how are you tonight, Lance? I'm doing really well. How are you? I'm doing great. This was a great interview. This is a great conversation. We finally got somebody from West Point, someone who has been emailing us, uh, had a couple of uh, off-air conversations with this person, and the information is so refreshing and, and so so necessary at this particular time. It's interesting information, and uh, just so you know that we did verify this person is who he claims to be. Um, we, we did see some evidence of this. Uh, so he, he did go to West Point, and he did graduate with Julie Murray. And uh, so he, he's got an interesting account of West Point and the culture of West Point, and I think that's mostly the, the bulk of this episode. But we do get into some personal stuff, too. The thing about West Point and and talking about it for so long and looking into the case and, and seeing West Point and Mora was at West Point and she, I'm doing air quotes, got kicked out of West Point. People just hear that and they, they put together a, a, a whole scenario of, of the culture there and what the, the situation could be for somebody to get kicked out. It was really refreshing to hear this from somebody who was at West Point at the time who could tell us that there is a process and and how how this how this could come about and he talks about his circle of friends he talks about how students interact he talks about what it's like being a freshman a sophomore a junior and he gets into some other things that are you know frankly you just you have to listen to him to him speak Okay, follow us on Twitter at MauraMurrayDoc, and if you're hearing this this week, come see us at CrimeCon. Thank you very much for listening. Welcome to Missing Maura Murray, Sam. First question I have is, what is West Point like, and how difficult is it to get into West Point? West Point's a very difficult institution to get into. Um, I don't like to think of it like that, but I guess it is because it always shows up as, you know, the acceptance rate is very low. Uh, there's a very large physical component um, to getting in and large mental component, uh, mental being not just classwork, but, uh, I guess mental toughness. You have to learn a lot of military skills while doing that. So if you're accepted, uh, you have to show leadership potential while you're in high school. Uh, and, you know, kind of a burgeoning growth mentally. Uh, but then if you, if you are accepted, you end up going to what's called yeah. cadet basic training. And that's the first summer there. And that starts at the end of June. So right after your senior year of high school, um, 
I went, my first day of cadet basic training was June 27, 1997. So I basically had three weeks off from the end of my high school graduation until I went to uh, basic training. And then you go into the academic year and you do your uh, freshman academic year, which is called plebe year. And that's kind of brutal uh, because not only are you expected to do a number of classes, well, all of your, you know, your full academic course load, which is six classes, but then you have duties that you have to perform day to day, which includes uh, distributing laundry, um, you know, cleaning areas. There are things called minutes, which that could be a whole podcast in and of itself. It's where you stand under a clock and you're basically an alarm clock for upperclassmen to let them know when they have to go to formation before they go to lunch. It's a different world. We've had numerous discussions and numerous comments about the culture of West Point, and I only have movie references really uh to 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 go back on as far as what a, a military academy is like were there were there cliques were there groups of of individuals that stuck together or was it more like you're on your own no i think there were there were loose cliques and there were groups of friends who you'd hang out with um people you'd identify with i uh, so i would say for like Julie and Aaron Searfoss's click. So Aaron Searfoss was Julie's roommate, I think all four years. But everybody kind of, you hang together as a grade. So you identify as a class, but you might not hang out together socially. But if it came down to, you know, one... I guess there are like step down levels of, you know, so you always identify with your friends and then your, your, your classmates and then with people that you went to school with. So it's a loose organization like that. Kind of like, I think anybody would probably identify with, Oh, Hey, I went to, you know, the same college as you. So you'd always, be willing to talk to somebody. You might not be, you know, socially interactive with them, but definitely willing to talk to them. Was the culture outside of West Point one where if you, if something happened at West Point and you were part of it, that stayed at West Point? Was, was that, was the culture something like that where, um, yeah, exactly that. If, if, if something went down at, at your school with your group of, of people, even if it wasn't your group of people, if something went down at West Point, it stayed at West Point. Was it like Vegas? Was it like Vegas is what I'm saying. No, they um, – so the military culture has – it's – it almost can seem like, you know, there could be a lot of conspiracy and cover-ups and stuff like that. Uh, military culture is so simple and simplistic – the cover-ups had to end after Vietnam. So they went to a lot of just, it's almost like uh, Florida and the sunshine rule where any type of 
information that the police can get or that have the police have gotten, the public is allowed to get it without a um, freedom, freedom of information act request. It doesn't stay within West Point. And if someone does something wrong, uh, then it's, they really don't have a problem with doing it. I think that's where Mara hit her snag. You mentioned there's a physical component and mental component needed to get into West Point. How does that happen? Um, you, you, and you also mentioned checkups on high school. Like, uh, who looks into you? Who 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 looks into to a certain person at a certain high school and says this person has the physical component, potentially the mental component, and uh, maybe is displaying leadership in military schools when you're in high school? Who who recruits you? Because I wasn't recruited. What what the heck? They have um, so they have actually officers who are stationed. The regional officers uh, that do admissions for West Point. So there's a Northeast region, you know, Southeast, Midwest, Southwest, very, you know, a lot of different officers and they go around and they actually come and they talk to you. I think that, so the written application for West Point was probably one of the shorter written applications that I went through. Um, for the schools that I applied to, got into, it, you know, the essays, they were like, make this essay six sentences long, one paragraph, no more than six sentences. And you're like, oh, dang, you know, but it's good. You know, they put bumpers on it. Uh, but you also had to go through, a, um, you know, a physical test. You had to have an interview with an officer who comes in and sits in your house with your family. He kind of sees who you are, where you're at, you know, what kind of support group that you have. Is it like imperative for them to go to your house to complete that process? Yes. We're talking about it as as adult men, right? But back then you're talking about 17 or 18-year-old kids. So you do need to see the support structure and and the where, you know, what what has made this person into where what they are right now and you also want to get a, a good assessment of of the conditions. I, I would imagine. Yeah. Absolutely. I think it's a very thorough vetting process. So they're looking for people that are intelligent enough to, you know, handle the academic workload uh, that they put at, which is the, the way that they run academics is that they want to make sure that every class that you have combined, there is no way that you can finish the work that you have to do to be able to turn in the next day. So you can never make all of your due dates. So you have to learn how to prioritize and then learn how to lose or learn how to not succeed, but prioritize and then, you know, work on your failures, you know, to do it. And that doesn't even include, you know, shining your shoes, polishing your brass, making your bed, putting all of your hangers, with your clothes on them, canted in the right direction. I mean, so it's it's made to keep you in a 
a constant state of anxiety, I guess, or um, uh, how do you say it? You know, just you're never, ever there. It's You're reaching. You're trying as hard as you can, but no one ever gets there. Complacent. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Right. It, it's, it seems to me like you're just you're explaining about being, like you said, prioritizing, being proactive, always being aware of every little detail that's going on. And they make sure that you're aware of every little detail that's going on. It's almost like controlled obsessive compulsiveness where, you know, this has to be like this and this has to be like this. And. In a way, I that you know, I, I hope our, I hope our listeners aren't listening to this and thinking that what a what a horrible way to live. I mean, that actually is a pretty decent way to get by when you're always striving for something. I loved what you said about how they they teach you to deal with, like they give you so much work you can't possibly get it done in that time frame. But that's not the point. The point is is so you figure out how to prioritize. And and deal with I'll do this now, this now, and hey, this is going to have to wait, but I'm going to finish it. It's just going to have to wait, and then the next thing that comes up is is going to fall behind just a little bit, but uh, soon I'll get all my priorities straight. It it's really it's fascinating, and that that you know you never like Tim said you you just never become complacent. You never become comfortable. West Point, two hundred years unimpeded by progress. <laughs> <laughs> It works as long as you understand what it's designed to do. I actually think that Maura got it. And I think that she brought a lot of her, you know, the the love and the security that she felt within a regimented environment. I think that she bought it, brought it to UMass. What makes you say that she... Um, got that culture, and uh, and did you know Mora personally? Yes, we had a uh, party after the finals uh, for West Point at that year. The party was down on Cape Cod. It's a couple of days long, um, a lot of socializing, time at the beach, you know, drinking alcohol, stuff like that, uh, and but no incidents whatsoever in fact as you know with respect to Mora it she was there and you know saw her talked to her for a bit but she's kind of quiet and mind her own business no nothing bad nothing weird either How did you find out that Mora went missing? I was uh, in New York uh, doing work for my old company, uh, working on a spreadsheet and boring as hell, but still working on it. Popped in my headphones and actually turned on the the Generation Y podcast that I hadn't listened to. And it said, Mora Murray said, Maura? Like Julie's sister? So I listened to it, and then they talked about her and being from Hanson and going to West Point and then UMass. 
that's how I heard about, and then I heard about your guys, um, podcasts that you guys were starting and that's how it all got started. And what year was that? Uh, this was probably November, December of 2015. That's crazy to me because we live in this world where, you know, we talk about Mora and we talk about various other cases and we just assume that it's a well-known thing. And you're from Massachusetts. You went to West Point. You met her. You're friendly with her sister. And in in 2015 was the first time you heard about it. And it, it always strikes me as as incredible when people tell you know they they haven't heard of this or you know even even some people will say if if more ran away with all of this you know scrutiny and all of these people looking for her, she certainly would have popped up at some point something would have happened but the world's i mean as small as the world is the world's still a pretty big place it is and you have it like at least from my perspective um yeah i have friends that I've lost touch with, um, who are still good friends, but you know, it's like you haven't talked to them for four or five years, but then once you talk to them, everything's, you know, it's like you never skipped a beat with them. Uh, it's difficult because, you know, even though I was on, you know, I was friends with them, but I wouldn't say that I would reach out to them you know, afterwards, if I saw him on deployment, sure, I'd say hi. Or, you know, if I had a reason to talk with him on Facebook afterwards, sure. But I just, I hadn't, and they hadn't with me, so I had no idea. And with, you know, with Bill, like, he kept it real quiet, like real close to the vest. And then, so I'd talk with people, but... I think that uh, there was just a lot of not talking about stuff, you know, unless you were the actual person who had physical contact with those people at the time, uh, the army relationships, the army friendships can always be picked up, but you don't broadcast your, you know, what, what's really going on, especially with, you know, the Murrays are, you know, Good, respectable, yeah, but very close-knit Irish Catholic type of family. Um, And, you know, they keep their stuff mostly to themselves. And I think that's why it is misunderstood. But sorry, I'm going down rabbit holes now. No, that's okay. Um, You you just mentioned Bill. You're talking about Bill Bill Roush. Yeah. How well did you know Bill during that period of time? Honest Bob knew him very well. Uh, was that his nickname? Well, uh, yeah, that's a nickname that me and a few other people had for him. The reason being is that Bill got in trouble for lack of documentation on some type of English paper or history paper that he was doing. Contested, and I know he feels like, or he documented it incorrectly. He didn't dot his I's and cross his T's, but wasn't trying to fool anyone. So the West Point system came down hard on him and they made him a December graduate, which means he couldn't graduate with his class and have to spend additional semester at West Point. That's why he doesn't get his own 
like picture in the yearbook. He only gets his, you know, the black and white picture. Uh, it sucks. But he picked himself up by the bootstraps. And this was when he was a freshman or a sophomore. But by the time he was um, a senior, he was one of the head members of the cadet honor committee. Like the people that investigated, you know, those types of ooh, honor infractions. No, it's not. His case is very not. Uh, it's very muddled. Like mine was cut and dry. Used a fake ID. Got busted. All right. <laughs> oh, that's fine. Um, but Bill was, you know, it, it was stupid. And he instituted a lot of changes to make it more, uh, to make the honor system at West Point more realistic. You know, so if you don't put a period, you know, as opposed to a semicolon in your documentation at the end of your work, like, no, you're not cheating. You're not committing an honor violation. You just put the wrong, you know, the wrong punctuation there. And it was that silly. Where did the nickname Honest Bob come from? Well, we always used to give him crap for having an honor violation. But then when he became, you know, uh, one of the top guys within the honor committee making these changes, it was kind of an ironic and funny thing to give him the moniker honest Bob. There's a lot of speculation about how Bill treats women and it's been brought up in various, uh, various forums. And it, did you ever experience anything that, that, that you looked at and said, Hey, that, that's a little, that might be a little, uh, a little aggressive or a little possessive. No, I haven't. Um, in fact, I know that that's, you know, that that's out there. I, he has always been a very, he's very outgoing, but he's never been bad to anyone that I've ever seen. Actually, I'm more introverted than he is. I think he's extroverted. Uh, I, he's a, yeah, he's a good guy. I, you know, I trust him taking care of anyone, you know, in my family, uh, or extended family. And that's not just a sugarcoat or BS, you know, because I'm friends with them. I just haven't seen it. And I, I don't know. I don't know what went on or, you know, what the allegations are really about, but I do, I do know, who I've seen, and he's always a straight-up dude. I trust him. There's also been various comments about uh, his mother, Sharon. Have you ever met his mother? Because they're the t- the 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 TV show that or the program that um, everyone references in Moore's disappearance features his mother quite a bit. And and to be honest, she they sort of make her look as if she is a bit unhinged. Had he ever mentioned anything to you about his his mother influencing his life? No, actually, he always seemed like he, and he still does. I still text with him. You know, I talked with him over text uh, about a month ago. You know, I do it about every month. You know, just check in, see how things are going. 
Um, he seems like a standalone guy. I've never met his mom. I've never actually had any discussions about her uh, with him. And likewise with me, like, you know, with my family, we've just been kind of, you know, one-on-one or, you know, in our group of friends. But he's a stand-up dude. You'd actually, if you meet him, like, you you guys would like him. He's a very, very good guy. And I'm, I'm happy for him now, too, that he's, uh, well, yeah, he's got, you know, he's got a couple kids. Like, you know, he's married. And <sighs> I feel bad. I've, I've never even approached him talking about Mora. Um, but I know probably I've always... You know, when we were having drinks or something, I'm always like, do I go there? Do I go there? And I always back off because I think that, you know, you can kind of see it in him. It's still, he's like, he's, he doesn't like it or he's like, what the fuck? And so it's just one of those things that you don't, you know, there are topics you don't broach with people and, that's Did you mean when you see him and, and he looks like he's and you, you just made like a, a face that looked like you were frustrated? Um, is he frustrated with do you mean that he's frustrated with people talking about it? I want to ask, but I chicken out. That's why I make the face. I guess chicken out isn't the right word. It's just. I guess like through conversation, you know that there are topics that you don't want to bring up. You know, it's like things that you both know, but you don't want to, but you don't talk about kind of the things that are left unsaid. Right. You don't go there because it's, it's, it's uncomfortable. I also want to make clear that you're not saying he's uncomfortable talking about it. You're saying you understand the situation. And, and, yes, sir. okay. Yeah. You don't have to call me, sir. He, in some way, feels as though he could have done more at the time of Moore's disappearance? I think that if he's haunted about it, and this is speculation, but trying to think of like minds, you know, because we are fairly similar you know, in the way that we think about stuff. I would say that if he's haunted, he's haunted about the run-up to it, the long-distance relationship stuff, uh, the difficulty of that. I, I think it's, yeah, I, I mean, it's tough to, if he's down at Sill, Port Sill, you know, to be able to get leave when you're in the officer basic course to get leave to go look for your missing girlfriend, he had to really 
schmooze with the people that could say yes to him. Uh, because typically the military doesn't recognize anything outside of like legal family. So my fiance went missing. Yeah. The army could say, beat it. No, you're going to keep training. Like she's not your wife. She's not your mom. So he must've had to really pull some strings to be able to get there. And I think that says a lot. I don't know how much searching that he did, but I've heard that he, you know, was there within, you know, hours, not days or whatever. Also the, the phone calls sounds to me like a kid who's in his young twenties, who has a long distance girlfriend who he's worried about. She's probably worried about him. They're probably on the rocks, um, but still trying to work it out either way, you know, cause Maura calls him when she's at four in the morning and he's calling her and he's worried. He's showing up. I don't know. There's some bill like the Kate Markopoulos thing and Kate was not digging bill. He's an interesting guy. Uh, bill is, and he'd be a, a good guy to approach sometime. Yeah. We we asked him. Um he he said not right now. Um yeah. but uh you are you saying that that Kate Markopoulos wasn't a fan of Bill? I don't know. It wasn't there some kind of like hang up like Bill was calling Kate and Kate, you know, they talked for a little while or he was yeah. texting her. So Yeah, per the phone records, they had some calls that the, the yeah. day that Mora went missing. It sounds to me like a boyfriend who's calling the you know, the BFF of his girlfriend, they're on the rocks and he's probably like, Hey, can you have Mara call me? What the F, you know, can we get this thing? It just sounds like, you know, a bad twenties movie, but someone actually goes missing, you know, Ugh. which is terrible. But, you know, knowing like having been in Bill's shoes myself, like, you know, long-term or long distance relationships, that are long term and they're on the rocks. Like that is always the worst part about it. If it was me, I would think that what haunts him is was it something that he did or said beforehand that caused her to go away and for whatever reason she went away. She went away. Um, you know, good, bad, you know, foul play or disappearing, whatever. You know, was it me? So you're saying you think he still harbors some guilt? I don't think he harbors guilt. Well, even even they, though if he's not like specifically responsible, some, a lot of people harbor guilt in some of the, some of these areas. I think that he wished that if it was me, it would be oh, I wish I did stuff better. Like maybe I'm, you know, did she go away because of me? You know, am I a part of this? I mean, he's not an active part of it, but not guilt, but maybe slight haunting. So somewhat responsible, you know, am I, he he questions whether or not he's responsible. Then again, I'm not a psychiatrist. So I would just think if it was me. Yeah. I don't think that you really have to be a psychiatrist to understand that 
if this happens to anybody, even if you are in your early 20s and it, it, it happens to you, I don't know how long it would be before you don't think about that every day and say, what if, what if, what if, what if? And it, it, you can, it's not so much haunting as it is like there's unanswered questions. There's something that's not you, – you said a couple of times that they were on the rocks and a lot of people are going to listen to that and say, oh, she ran away because she was on the rocks with her boyfriend. But it might not have been a big deal with her. You know, We just don't know. I mean I've probably been on the rocks with numerous girlfriends and had no idea I was on the rocks with them. And, and then the next thing you know, it's over. Um and I, I just don't want people to get the wrong idea and think that, you know, it, they were on the rocks and and he treated her badly and that's why she took off. And that's that that could be something that's in his head right now thinking, what? what? You know, like, did I do something wrong? So I get what you're saying. I don't know if he actually is going to feel guilt and more guilt or more like it's just open-ended right now and – and just bewilderment. How could it possibly be? How could it possibly have gone on this long? And it's not even about him anymore. It probably was. It's a fascinating psychological conversation to get into, right? Because I'm sure for a period of time he thought it was about him. We're all kind of selfish when we're at that age. Um, him probably a little less than than Tim and myself because we didn't go to military school. We don't have. We didn't get that type of discipline. But it had to have been. It had to have been a certain period of time before he got over that that selfish. It was about me, and then then that has to hit you like, wow, this is where where is she? She's not coming back. It's I've always looked at Bill and thought I I just don't. It, it takes a certain kind of strength you don't have or you don't know you have to to be where to be where he is right now. It takes a certain kind of strength. And I'm not sure, I'm not sure if like you'd ever get that if you don't have something like that happen to you. You're in your twenties, you're dating another young twenties person, and it's long distance. There could be stuff that happens, and it makes long distance relationships very rocky. They could try; they might have had deeper feelings for each other. You know, I think that, yeah, the disappearance bothers him quite a bit. I think that he pushes it down. This goes down another rabbit hole, but that um, the message that he got with the breathing and the crying or whatever that is attributed to, he wouldn't have gotten a Red Cross message had he not been legally married to her. So Red Cross messages go out to next of kin, spouses, parents, children, um, whoever is listed as next of kin. Bill wouldn't have been listed as next of kin if he was just Maura's boyfriend, even if he was engaged to be engaged, even if he was engaged, unless he had legal paperwork saying, I am married to her and she is my next of kin, the Red Cross wouldn't have called him. That's what's always kind of struck me weird about that call. What's the process that would involve the Red Cross like? So the way that I've always um, engaged and encountered the Red Cross is if a service member, so 
let's say, an army sergeant, if he gets injured or killed, you send out a Red Cross message to their next of kin. Uh, and so it's a one-way, one-way, you know, shipment, and the Red Cross has to contact them first, you know, before anyone in the chain of command can contact them or before it can go to the media or whatever. I've never heard of the Red Cross calling a, like a civilian to an army person, well, unless they are officially married, why would they call Bill? That's what never made sense to me. Uh, The Red Cross doesn't call boyfriends and girlfriends. They call legal family members. But if it was something he was trying to arrange a trip out of there and then they called him back? He would have to ask them. Uh, But after the family found out, I don't... don't, I'd, I'd have to look up the Red Cross rules, but, you know, just from knowing, like, being a commander... You know, a company commander, I've had to do this before, like, yeah, the Red Cross doesn't mess around with people unless you are legally, you know, legally or biologically part of their family. Okay. So that's what always has tripped me up about that message. And he was pretty sure that it was Mora. I mean, just from the the, the interview he gave in the, that's in the Disappeared episode... Uh, he seemed pretty confident at that time. Doesn't mean that that hasn't changed. A lot of people email us, or a lot of people's minds go in this way where they hear, oh, that, that Mora was in West Point and she was really smart. And her car was left somewhere and she vanished without a trace. Maybe she is now some kind of CIA operative and that was a way to get her to disappear, her Maura Mari to disappear, and then she's free to be the CIA operative. Uh, as someone who went to West Point and probably had people who are CIA recruiters looking at you. Um, like, do you know anything about that process of being recruited by the CIA? And would it ever happen like something like what happened to Mora? No, that's not what happened with her. No, I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> yeah, no, that's... Uh, Nice. It's better to hide in plain sight. Um, so she didn't, it wasn't that she was going off the grid because, you know, she was going, you know, she black ops. She's not the knock, you know, that <laughs> non-official cover. Do you know anything about that process? It's, hiding in plain sight is the way that is the best way to do counterintelligence, espionage, all that kind of like spy stuff. And it's really not that sexy either. Um, and they wouldn't, the, the company wouldn't, um, put, they wouldn't make a huge weird show of stuff. Right. To get a 20 something 
you know, recruit in their instant way. Right. Not just ask her to come down to, you know, come down to Virginia to spend some time. Maura had gotten in, into some trouble, so I, I, I'm not sure if she's the kind of person that they would have been looking at for something like that at, the, at that point. And also, if they uh, were going to do... Maybe. Yeah. Okay, that's good. I want yeah, like, to follow she, up with that. She's a, yeah, she's smart. You know, she's personable. I think she, like, just like Julie, like, she's, she's quiet. She's clever. I don't think in a bad way. Um, I think that they know how to operate on their feet. I think that, you know, Fred taught them how to, you know, live life and stay out of trouble. Mostly, you know, do your own thing, but don't, you know, don't get burnt by by people. And I think for the most part, uh, you know, they've done that. And, and yeah, Julie's, she, she's like a dang, I don't know, cross the demon now or something. Um, but, <laughs> but if you were going to be recruited by the CIA or, or something, that way. it wouldn't, but wouldn't, wouldn't, instead of leaving your car in the middle of route One Twelve in front of three houses, um, instead of that, wouldn't you just leave your car at Logan airport? Yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Like, it's much less mysterious than it's like, oh, well, obviously this person got on a plane, even if they can't track what plane, or maybe they got into rent, rented a car. Or I mean, God knows what would happen at that point, but obviously it would be some path to escaping where she was uh, in the middle of Route 112 in front of three houses in that area. It just doesn't seem to make any sense if you're following yeah. that path. Yeah. And. It would be that, you know, if she needed a cover story, it would be, oh, hey, I'm going to work for the Department of State. And now I'm going to work down in Virginia for a while. She wouldn't even have to leave her car anywhere. It's not, I mean, it's cool to, you know, kick those theories around, but it's, uh, the more, I guess sexy you get, the less sexy it is, and it it's boring, and it looks boring, and it looks boring for a reason, so it doesn't raise flags. Like, now, a, a car that's facing the wrong way on Route 112 up in New Hampshire is not the way to, you know, even if she was taken by the Black Chinook, you know, to <laughs> down, down to Langley. Uh, that's not the way that they do it. Okay. They'd be like, leave your car in the driveway, take a cab. Yeah. <laughs> Good to know. Okay. We'll pay your last month's rent and we'll, or, you know, finish out your tuition for the semester. And then you have a new job down in DC working for the State Department. What kind of training did you have to go through? And did that include survival training? Yes. Uh, so the training that you go through in the first summer that you're there. Uh, so before you actually start your plebe year academic year, uh, you go through cadet basic training and that is a lot of time is spent on learning how to march, learning how to do close order drill, which is parading around with your rifle and big parades. Uh, you do some, Bivouacking, which is the military's version of camping uh, with guns, you know, that only shoot blanks. Uh, you learn how to shoot a rifle. 
Um, so the first summer is really the super duper basics. Uh, the second summer where Mora um, was at before uh, she decided to leave West Point, you do a little bit more survival type of training. It's a, uh, a program, so it's right after your freshman year. It's called Camp Buckner. Uh, and it's a kind of a military installation about 10 miles away from West Point, uh, which is it's almost like summer camp. Uh, but you spend a lot more time out in the woods, learn how to tie knots. You know, you learn how to dig trenches and, you know, fight enemy in close combat. And then, uh, you know, everybody, well, at the time, uh, they would send everyone on big kind of like Greyhound bus style and everybody would go. So it'd be a thousand kids on a number of buses and you go down to Fort Knox, Kentucky to do armor training, which is tanks basically. And that was always a good time. Uh, but it's all summer. Uh, you get about two weeks off before you have to, after your freshman year ends, you get about two weeks off two or three weeks off and then you have to go to Camp Buckner and that lasts for the rest of the summer. And then you start your sophomore year. So I would say survival training. No, Uh, it's not going to teach you how to, you know, eat berries or twigs or, you know, how to kill wildlife or, you know, snare squirrels, which is legal. But if you're starving, then you have to know how to do it. Um, that you learn in more advanced military training, but outside of West Point. Um, the so I I think I know where you're going. Are you going? Yeah, I'm to, going with like she survive out in the woods. Yes, exactly. Yep, in the cold. If, yep. she, if she could, she. It's not because of what she learned. Maybe she learns some fundamentals there, but to actually be able to survive long-term away from civilization, it would have taken a lot of training that wasn't offered to rising yearly. So rising sophomores, it's tough to live out the woods. Yeah, it's not, it's not fun. There are a lot of, you learn all the basic considerations that you never even think about. And they don't, they, they don't have to teach them there. You know, it's like a stepwise process and it's only the, really the big second step, you know, and they're still trying to teach how to shoot straight. (laughs) So, you know, all the, the ins and outs of survival training, she'd have to learn somewhere else. Okay. Not, not from school, not from West Point. And you mentioned that uh, when when you're in that process, you go to Fort Knox. Um, yep. That that sounds like that. That's where Mora uh, got got in trouble stealing the makeup um, at West Point, or, or while she was at West Point. So one of the questions we had for you is, what happens if you're a student at West Point and you get in trouble? You get caught, say, stealing makeup, for example. The cadet honor code is uh, a cadet will not lie, cheat, or steal, nor tolerate those who do. 
So cheating is cheating on a test. Lying is saying, oh, I was here, but you were actually there. And then stealing is stealing. Um, it happens like people, young kids make dumb decisions over dumb stuff. And I myself am guilty of that. Uh, you know, my violation was I lied about my age. I was in Key West. I was 19. I don't feel badly about it, but it was wrong. (laughs) Um, the, uh, so what happens then is if you are, well, let me back this up a minute. You're, Freshman and sophomore years, so your plebe and yearling years, are basically freebies as opposed to, like, um, because once you hit your first day of junior year, you are locked in to West Point. So you commit some kind of honor violation and you get kicked out after your junior year starts. The Army will... Well, you'll get kicked out of West Point, and then you'll become a, um, I think you become an E4. Like, you become an enlisted person in the Army. I actually had a, one of my Ranger squad leaders was my classmate at West Point, but he got kicked out because he failed math junior year. So they're like, all right, you have to join the Army now. He's like, send me to the damn Rangers. So he went. And you're my squad leader. I was like, you're awesome. Uh, it was good to see him again, too. Um, we, we had a lot of fun. Um, the uh, So back to the story. Maura had just finished her freshman year. So she could either go through the honor process, which I'll explain in a minute, or I think she could just say, Eh, you know, hands up, I'm out. And I don't falter for that decision because I think she just didn't want to go through the process. You know, she'd be dragged through the mud. Um, it's a process where basically it's... I might have to edit this out, but it's basically a Maoist self-criticism to just stay at West Point. And even once you like, you know, do the self criticism, you know, and you have to admit to everybody how awful you are because, you know, you stole a tube of lipstick from a damn PX in Fort Knox, Kentucky. It's wrong to do it, but the, you know, the process that you go through. So uh, what happens is you have, the honor committee recommends you, it's almost like a, a criminal, um, a grand jury process, but your judges and anybody that can debo you at any time are any of the officers that are above you. And they typically forget where they came from themselves. They forget what it's like to be 19, 20 years old. And it's funny that I'm saying that now because my peers are now those people. I'm like, don't forget where you came from. Yeah, so you go through basically a, a grand jury process, and then you go through what's in, what's called an honor board, which is um, 
you have a cadet jury uh, of, I think it's eight people, and you can have witnesses speak for you, you know, your facts presented against you, and uh, this such and such a person was out of his room at this time after taps, and he was at the bar, you know, in Highland Falls drinking. Never done that. Um, but so, and then, but then you have character witnesses and then you have people on a jury who are cadets. So it's supposed to be a jury of your peers who say, all right, yeah, they messed up, but who cares? Let them go. Yeah, but there's where the officers come in and they say, oh no, he still broke the honor code. So it's almost like a judge coming in and saying, all right, this person's acquitted, but we're still going to give you the death penalty just because I, the judge, feel like it. And it really, the honor process is, it needs to get changed. But it is a, I guess it's a necessary process, but I don't think Maura wanted to go through it. And I think that she wanted to go be a nurse and she I have a feeling she was probably pissed about leaving because I wouldn't doubt that she let her exist her down. <laughs>